If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Two, two weeks of the Holy Spirit sermon series that we've been going through for the last uh, month. And so really excited. I don't know about you guys, but I have just been thoroughly enjoying studying this. Um, I was telling our Wednesday night crowd last week, our Tuesday night, sorry, we do Tuesday nights now, our Tuesday night crowd last week that, um, to be honest with you, this is kind of the first time uh, in, in my life, and, and I'm a pastor, right, I've been to school for like, that I've really done just in-depth study on the Holy Spirit, and I, I've really been enjoying it, I've learned a lot, all of that to say, it's always a scary place when you're the pastor who's learning, and then turning around on Sunday and teaching, so... If it ever seems sporadic, that's why. That's, that's where we're doing with all of this. But so far, we've been tracing the person of the Holy Spirit from Genesis to Revelation, determining that he, he is not a force to be captured or contained. He is a person to be known and known by, to know and be known by. Uh, and, and that his desires as God, his characteristics, is, is that as people encounter him, he will bring them new life. This is what he does in Genesis 1. This is what he does in the life of Jesus. And this is what he's doing now in us. So last week we opened the book of Acts and started in Acts chapter 1. And we just kind of asked the question, who is the Spirit and how do we give him more control over our lives? And we said that the Spirit is God within us, empowering us to do everything that Jesus did and taught. That we are the continuation of what Jesus was doing when he walked earth 2,000 years ago. This is what the church and you as individuals filled with the Spirit, if you've been redeemed in Christ, this is what we're called to do. So then everything we see in the book of Acts is the Spirit of God doing that same thing he did through Jesus, but now through ordinary people. He desires to do the same thing now through immersing and empowering us. And I think... If I were being honest, and I imagine if most of you in here were being honest, you would probably say something along the lines of, that's great, and I agree, but, but I kind of feel underwhelmed by, by that. My experience with the Spirit and my experience with God doesn't all that much align with the book of Acts. And, and we come in and ask, well, why, why is that? And, and there's a thousand different purposes and reasons and excuses that people can give, um, you know, has God got distracted? Has he changed his mind? Has he changed his method? And, and I think that we have to resolve, wherever we find that answer, we need to resolve that this doesn't happen, I believe, because we've missed something. And we can blame different things. We can, we can blame distraction, right? I, I have access to 11,000 plus hours of entertainment, like, right here. And it's with me all the time. So you know, I, don't, I don't need the Holy Spirit. I got this. YouTube, man, we can go all day with, with that. So there's distraction. I don't need to worry about that. I got my phone with me. Or there's just rampant biblical illiteracy um, that, that the church is suffering more now than ever of we, we say we believe this, but most of us never read it, so we don't know what it says. Or um, there, there's this kind of tug-of-war that the secular culture is doing where the church is pulling you this way and the secular culture is pulling you this way and you're stuck somewhere in between. And, and all of those may be justified reasons for why our experience with the Holy Spirit does not seem to line up with the book of Acts. But if I was to put my finger on what I think the purpose of this is, or the problem is, is I would say, I believe there is a gap between the Spirit's moving and our doing. I think there's a gap between the Spirit's moving and our doing. So, so be honest with me. 
How many arguments in your family derive from a gap between speaking and doing for you guys? Let's see if I can give you some, some examples. Um, when I was a freshman in college, I had uh, three roommates, and we had this system set up. I think it was a really ingenu- ingenious system uh, where you had a rotation for whose turn it was to wash dishes. And so, you know, it would be your turn, and once you wash dishes, it would be someone else's turn, and so on and so forth, until it wrapped back around. And the way our system worked is that anytime there were four or more dishes in the sink, you had the right to go to the sink, wash those four dishes, and move it to the next rotation. So, you know, if, if you chose to wait, you could wait and let the dishes stack up, or you could go wash those four, and you didn't have to worry about it anymore. It's pretty good, pretty smart system, right? Like that. Except for, it was my turn to wash dishes, and it was finals week on top of each other. And I remember multiple times my roommates being like, Philip, wash the dishes. And he's like, I know, I'm going to wash the dishes. I promise I'll wash the dishes. But right now, I just have so much work. I got finals to study for. After, I, after my final tomorrow, I'll, I'll wash the dishes. So get back from the final. Philip, wash the dishes. I know, but I've just been, you know, my brain's dead. I just need to take a few minutes and relax. And so after I get done relaxing, and well, I got a final the next day, so... Philip, and so I would say, I wash the dishes, and there's a gap between my, my moving or my saying and my doing, right? This wraps all the way down to the very final day of school where they're about to kick us all out of classrooms. And uh, I go to wash the dishes and realize one of my roommates who had the dish soap moved out and took the dish soap with him. My moving and my doing were separate and it created a problem. So I did what any reasonable person would do. I went to the bathroom and got the hand soap and washed the dishes with like guy smelly hand soap. And that was, you know, I didn't have much conflict between me and my roommates. I'm pretty sure I had my one roommate left there with me, had been able to, he would have like pushed me down the stairs as I was moving out that day. He was so upset with me. Why did, where did that conflict come in? It came because there was a gap between my speaking and my, my doing, right? And I imagine that you have these in your own family. Your wife says, hey, take out the trash. And you say, yes, dear, during commercials, except Netflix doesn't have commercials. And so... After this episode, but then Netflix does this thing where the episode ends and the next one just starts. And you're like, oh, now I've got to watch this one too. And all of a sudden, it's bedtime and you've not taken any of you have this experience before. Or you tell your kids, man, you just, you finished the semester so well, you've been so good. We're going to go get ice cream on our way home after the grocery store. So you go to the grocery store and it's hectic as always. It's chaotic. It's crazy. And before you even know it, you're pulling into the driveway and you never stop to get ice cream. And you realize it about the same time your kiddo realizes it. Have you been there, right? There's gaps between our speaking and our doing. And and I point this out because I believe that this, whether it's intentional or not, begins to create issues when the spirit within us speaks or moves and it does not lead to action. So I start there to mention this. God's speaking is intrinsically connected to his doing. I heard one pastor put it like this one time, God's word is instantaneously performative. And so that means that when the Holy Spirit moves within us, God's desire is that movement would lead to action. God does not speak for the sake of entertaining. He wants to interact with and move and change and bring action. And all of that might just feel like fancy theology talk, but I would just kind of dial this all in by saying, and here's our main point today, the Spirit guides us to action. The Holy Spirit 
guides us to action. So if we go back to Genesis 1, and, and the Spirit is hovering over the deeps, and God speaks, and he says, let there be life, what, or let there be light, what happens? There, there is light. It's not God saying, let there be light, and then he comes down, and he mixes some atoms together, and he puts a little potion and all that. God just speaks, and boom, light exists. And he says, let land come up out of the waters and divide itself, and it happens, and let there be plants, and it happens, and let there be ant-. God speaks, and when he speaks, it happens. And then you fast forward all the way to the Gospels, and the same thing happens within the person of Jesus. Jesus is speaking, and his moving are his doing. So if Jesus goes out to a storm on the waters, and he says, be quiet, what happens? It quiets. When Matthew 14, 14 uh, it says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, so he's moved, and he healed their sick. Or Matthew 15, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days, and they've not eaten, and this is the story that then Jesus feeds the multitudes with the, the loaves and the fish. And in Luke 7, this mother is having a funeral for her only son, and they're carrying him out to be buried. And as Jesus is watching from afar on this, Luke 7 says that Jesus saw her, had compassion, he's moved within himself, and then he tells the young man, get up, and he gets up. And I say all that to say, if God's speaking in his moving is his doing, and if Jesus is speaking in his moving is his doing, then what is the Holy Spirit speaking and moving? He wants it to be his doing. There is an intrinsic connection between the movement of the Holy Spirit and the action that he is calling us to. So then, if the book of Acts is the continuation of everything Jesus did and taught through ordinary people, empowered and immersed in the same spirit, what should we expect to see? An intrinsic tie between the moving of the spirit and our doing. This is the pattern God has laid out in Scripture that he wants to see in his church and in those who claim his name and faithfully follow him. When the Spirit moves, his people obey and follow. And when the church follows, wonderful, amazing things begin to happen. You start seeing people that for the last 10 years of their life have been captivated and they're set free, right? We talked about this already this morning. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. And it's a whole lot like what Jesus said back in Luke chapter 4 when he quotes from Isaiah. And he says, the Spirit has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, release to the captives, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. So all of that is kind of recap getting us started. Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to begin today. Let me set up some quick, quick context Acts chapter 8, the ripple effects of Acts 2 at Pentecost have begun to just become unavoidable throughout Jerusalem. This is causing problems, particularly among the upper class Pharisees, Sadducees uh, leaders, because all of a sudden, uh, this, this new movement is saying, hey, you don't have to come to the temple to get forgiven by your sins. You just have to encounter the Holy Spirit. That's a problem, because, you know, the temple makes money on the side. That's part of what they do, and all of a sudden, that's not there anymore. And so there starts to get to be this conflict. This conflict paramounts and builds up until the point of this disciple and this deacon named Stephen encounters them, and they kind of go to a verbal debate war. Uh, it's funny, Acts chapter 7 even tells us that like Stephen schools them on the, through the Holy Spirit. Like He just puts them in their place. They get so mad, they murder him. They kill him in, in cold blood right there on the spot. This is what launches us into Acts chapter 8. Saul agreed with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all the apostles were scattered throughout, scattered throughout the land of Judea, Samaria, 
And devout men buried Stephen and mourned him deeply. Saul, however, was ravaging the church, and he would enter house to house and drag off men and women and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. And the crowds were all paying attention to Philip and said, as they listened and saw the signs he was performing, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Luke's going to give us another story there in Samaria, but I want you to skip down to verse 26 where Luke picks back up with the story of this deacon in the early church named Philip. Verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Where is he? He's in Samaria where there's great joy, lots of cool things happening. An angel speaks to Philip and says, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And this is the desert road. So he got up and he went, and there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and a high official of Cadence, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in a chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah out loud. Then the spirit told Philip, go and join the chariot. And when Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and saying, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and is a lamb silent before its shearers. He does not open its mouth. In his humiliation, justice was not denied him. Who will describe his generation for his life is taken from earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about himself or someone else? And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. And as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. And Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. How you doing? All right, cool story, lots of stuff going on. I want to focus on some key elements here within Luke's story over Philip and, and what's going on. There are five key movements in this story, and I think each one of them point out something to us about who the Spirit is and how he is moving and what that means as to our doing. So if the Spirit is guiding us to actions, what are, what are the movements here? We have the movement from Jerusalem to Samaria, the movement from Samaria to the desert road, from the desert road to the chariot, from the chariot to the water, and from the water to Azotus. Those are, those are your five movements, okay? So I'm going to break down all five of these, but let me just, just start here. What are the movers in these stories? What, what is causing these movements to happen? Who is causing these movements to happen? And admittedly, Luke only says the Spirit directly interacts with and moves for one of these. Because if you start with the first one, Jerusalem to Samaria, what, what is the mover there? It's persecution. Right? Saul is ravaging the church, and so the church begins to flee and go all around. And if, if you want to talk about uh, going and calling Philip from Samaria to the desert road, now we're talking about an angel. An angel comes and speaks to Philip. And then if you want to talk about the desert road to the chariot, this is the one time the, the Spirit actively says, hey, go, go to that chariot and talk to that person. And then if you want to talk about the chariot to the water, that's just kind of like circumstance. And then we'll talk about water to Azotus because then it just kind of goes off the rails and gets really weird. So welcome to Acts chapter 8. And remember what we said last week. The Holy Spirit is not formulaic. 
but he is in control, using everything to point to Jesus, who points us and restores us to the Father. Every one of these movements is about the spread of the gospel. And being in control, he can use every prompt, every moving, and bring about witness. So, each one of these could be a sermon in itself. We don't have time for that, so we're going to do a flyover over all of this. Let's start back, verse 4. So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the word. Philip went down to a city called in Samaria, proclaiming the Messiah to them. So we get from Jerusalem to Samaria, and how is the Spirit going to be the guide, the moving force in this? And I think I would say it to you this way. The Spirit guides through a loud intrusion. Not like out loud, but like he, he allows intrusion. He permisses it. The Spirit guides through a loud intrusion. We, we live in a world where sin is rampant. It's chaotic. It's devastating. It's destructive. And humanity is great at finding new, horrific ways to sin every day. That is like our speciality is how much we can mess things up very quickly. And please do not hear me say that any of this is ordained or caused by God. It's absolutely not. God is perfect. He is not the author of evil. Uh, and and any time you're in one of these situations and you want to look to heaven and cry out, God, where are you? What are you doing? The answer is always right beside you, grieving with you. So if you go to the end of Matthew 2, and I wish I had more time to focus on this, but uh, the end of Matthew 2 is the end of the Christmas nativity story. Uh, and I don't know about you guys, but whenever we do like children's nativity plays in church, we always cut the play right before this part of Matthew 2. Because we get the play where Mary gets to Bethlehem and she has the baby and the shepherds come in and the wise men come in. And we're like, oh, it's so good. Baby Jesus is here. And everyone claps and the whole crowd bows. Is that where the Bible ends the story? No, there's this whole other section at the end of Matthew where Herod gets word of the birth of this new king. And what does Herod do? He goes on a murderous rampage. Now, granted, I understand why we don't put that in the Christmas nativity scene. That would make for a really weird, like, who wants to play Herod this year and throw baby dolls off the stage? Like, we don't want to do that. I understand. I'm great with it. But what's really interesting is if you go read Matthew chapter 2, Matthew's telling us of these horrendous actions, and then Matthew's going to clarify each and every time, and he's going to say, and this happened so that it might be fulfilled through the prophet. And he says this not to say God ordained it, but to say God was in control of it and was aware of it and was grieving right there with Mary and Joseph as they carried their newborn baby to Egypt. It's a statement that the Spirit can move even through a loud intrusion. Matthew's point is that in all of these devastating situations, the Spirit of God was guiding and using despite sin's heinous attempt to stop him. That, that's what sin is. It's the attempt to stop the plan and the working of God bringing life to the world. And so Acts chapter 8 gives us another story that, that just gets in our face. And it says, hey, sometimes there's going to be devastating intrusions in your life. That diagnosis you never planned for. That de denial letter that you hoped so bad was going to be the opposite and it wasn't. The fifth time you go through the job interview... And they finally call you and say, ah, you're not really for us. You're like, dude, you put me through five interviews. That, that full-fledged attempt 
of the powers that be attempting to stop whatever God is doing within the church. And every time those things happen, the Spirit of God comes alongside us and shows up and says, I get this is devastating. Sin was never my intention for the world, but watch what I can do through this. So if you go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when, when Jesus is talking to his apostles and he says, hey, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea. What's that third town, by the way? Samaria. I'm just telling you, I don't think the church got together in the upper room with a whiteboard and was like, hey, I think we need to get a really good strategy for how to reach Samaria. How did the church reach Samaria? Paul was ravishing the church in Jerusalem. That's what it says up here in verse 3. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house and drag off men and women and put them in prison. There is a direct intrusion on these people, and it causes them to go and take the gospel out. The Spirit uses the horrific intrusions of sin and the devastation of sin to guide Philip and the others to Samaria, where there's story after story of people getting saved, right? Verse 4, verse 8. So there was great joy in that city. The Holy Spirit can guide us to action through a loud intrusion. Then we jump down to verse 26, and an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, get up and go south. So now we enter the next one. Because right in the midst of this intrusion, God then does what? He interrupts. So Samaria to the desert road, I think, is the spirit guiding through direct interruption. So there's a loud intrusion. There's direct interruption. This time God uses an angel. And we'll, we'll talk about that more next week. So if you're interested in that, you've got to come back next week. There's my little cliffhanger for you. Um, but don't, don't miss the story here. Wonderful things are happening Samaria is a city filled with great joy. Philip is in the midst of this. He is the one that's kind of led this cause in some ways. There's been people getting saved so much that they had to call back up to Jerusalem, like, get, uh, get, get Peter and John down here. We got stuff happening. And so they bring him down. And then right in the middle of this, it seems, an angel of the Lord speaks to Philip and says, why don't you go ahead and leave here and head down to the desert road? God, through an angel, totally interrupts Philip's ministry and says, go to the desert road. And this forces us to accept a reality where God moving in your life is very often unconcerned with what makes logistical sense. He's just not concerned with that. Because if I'm Philip, I'm like, what's at the desert road? Angel doesn't say. Desert makes it seem like there's not many people that live there. That seems unstrategic to me, spirit. And nope, doesn't get there. Just go to the desert road. Whenever I was dating Haley and we were engaged to be married... I was trying to figure out um, what, what I did after I graduated college. All my life, since I was 14, I've been called to ministry. And I got to start pastoring my very first church when I was 21 years old in Friendship, Tennessee. And this church wasn't a big church, per se, by any means, 30, 40 people. But they had a parsonage for me to live in. And so my whole life, from 14 onwards, I knew I want to do ministry. I want to do pastoral ministry. This is what God's calling me to. And right there, God had answered my prayers and, and brought me into that ministry. So as I was dating Haley, I was trying to figure out, hey, when, whenever I graduate, we want to get married. Does she move here or do I move there? And as we prayed through this and as we thought through this and as we tried to make decisions, over and over again, it became more and more apparent, move to New Mexico. You're going to go to New Mexico. And that's always a really fun conversation to have with your parents. Because I finally one day set, set my parents down and I said, hey, 
really believe God is calling me to New Mexico. And they did, out of the pureness of their heart, what every parent would do. Okay, Philip, now do you have a job lined up? No. Well, you're already doing what you want to do in ministry right here in Tennessee, right? Yes. But you don't know what you're going to do in New Mexico? No. Are you sure? I think this is what God's calling me to do. I I don't know, man. Like, this is what God's interacting in my life and moving me. And so we followed through with, with that. The Spirit has every right to move you to something that seems highly inconvenient and a giant waste of time. And he doesn't have to expand on why. He just gets to say, go to the desert road. Go to New Mexico. Those are kind of the same place, right? <laughs> and the angel does not tell Philip, go to the desert road, and there you'll find an Ethiopian man in a chariot. He's going to be reading from the book of Isaiah. Now, when you just says, go to the desert road. Luke doesn't tell us, but I bet there's a few hours at least of travel where Philip's walking down this road by himself, wondering, why? Why am I walking this desert road? There's no one here. Look at what was happening back there. And God just saying, no, 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 I'm interrupting your life. Trust me with this. The Spirit totally interrupts his life with inconvenience, and one of the worst strategic planning moves that the church could have concocted leads to a whole nation hearing the gospel. This is what God is doing through direct interruption. And so as Philip is walking this road, he sees this chariot, and then we get this verse right here in in verse 27, or uh, verse 26, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Then he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch high official of Cadence, queen of the Ethiopians. And then in verse 29, the spirit tells Philip, go and join that chariot. So this is the direct speaking of the spirit within Philip. And it says this provoking invitation, go to that chariot. This is what I want you to do. It's that heart pull towards this location. So the spirit guides through a loud intrusion, direct interruption, but also through provoking invitation. I'm inviting you, Philip, to participate in what I want you to do. Go join that chariot. And again, we're right back in that awkward phase because if you want to put a gap between the movement of the spirit and your action, this request wouldn't be hard to do that, right? But God, I don't know that person. That seems weird. God, that's a really nice chariot, and that guy looks like he's got a lot of money on him. I don't want someone to pull a gun on me when I go knock on that chariot door for like a sword or something like that, right? Like, this seems dangerous to to me. But Philip takes steps towards the chariot, and as he's taking steps, what does he hear? Something pretty familiar. This guy's reading scripture. And I hate to use that classic cliche of like, if you take the first step, then God does the rest. Because I'm not sure that's 100% true all the time. Sometimes God's saying, I need you to take a couple steps. But right here in this case, Philip takes the first step, and he finds God just like putting it on a tee for him to hit it out of the park. I don't know about you, but there are a few things better when like witnessing and having a conversation with a person who's like already sitting there like reading the Bible or has something, and they're like, I don't know what this means. Great. I would love to start. Com- Every conversation could start out that way. It would be a wonderful way to live life, Right? The Spirit puts it on a tee, and he just knocks it out of the park. The invitation of the Spirit in your life is always a direct invitation to join with what God wants to do. And when that moving becomes doing, the kingdom of God shines through. And what does it look like when the kingdom of God shines through? I don't know, Luke 4 from Isaiah, good news to the poor, release to the captive, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. You might be saying, Philip, I don't, I don't see that. 
but, but come on, verse 31, Philip says, how do you understand this, or do you understand? And he says, how can I unless someone guides me? This is sight to the blind in a spiritual sense. This is what the Spirit of God does when we allow him control and follow when his moving becomes our doing. Now we're starting to see the movements of the Spirit add up and connect together. And so the unit gets saved. It's an incredible thing. And we get to verse 36. And as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. Let me just go ahead and remind you, what's kind of like the name of the road they're on? The desert road. What does the word desert usually mean? Absence of water. Right? This is like traveling from here to Clovis. How much water is there? There's a desert road, and they're walking, and like right after this guy gets saved, and they're having a conversation, they look over, and they're like, oh, look, water. How long has that been there? Like, is this the one pit of water on the way down? I I don't know, and I'm kind of being a little bit facetious in all of this, but I want to say that to point out right here, the Spirit guides through provisional circumstance. He just aligns everything up so perfect so that whenever everything works together, the, the unit can look over and say, you talk about baptism, there's water right there, what's keeping us from, from doing that. Now let me specify alongside this one that, that this comes directly after Philip follows the invitation of the Spirit. This is not the person in front of him at Walmart drops a $100 bill and he's like, ooh, the Spirit provides for me today. Like, that's not what Philip's doing. And if the person in front of you at Walmart drops $100, give it back. That's, that's not provisional circumstances, okay? I just want to be very clear on that. This is God's omniscience and omnipotence, that's his all-knowing and his all-powerful nature, at play to orchestrate a life-altering event through a believer filled with his spirit to someone breaking through to new life through God's forgiveness. How long do you think the Ethiopian eunuch remembers this encounter? The rest of his life, dude. There's way too much. And you have probably some experiences like that. You're like, God just had provisional circumstances, and I don't I can't credit anything to that other than God. He's the one that solved that for me. And I point all of this out to say that when we're attuned to the Spirit and His moving becomes our doing, there will be provisional circumstances to attest to and give testimony to the Spirit's moving. Obviously, the first in this story is that the eunuch gets saved, but right after that, he puts his faith in Jesus and he looks over and says, oh, there's some water. And then we get to this point after the water. This one's a little bit weird, but I'll just go ahead and give you my take on it, and you may disagree, and that's okay. But from the water to Azotus, I believe the Spirit guides through miraculous invasion. I'll give you my my argument. Some people would say, you know, Luke's a little bit ambiguous here. We don't really know that. Maybe he's just using language that says, and Philip got up and, like, walked one way, and the Ethiopian eunuch walked the other way, and that's it. But I would just say a couple language points here. Uh, Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. That word carried... Sometimes it's translated snatch. This is actually where in the last few hundred years we've got our theology of like rapture, like snatch away. It's the same Greek word. So so carried away. And then we go down to verse 40 and we see Philip appeared in in Azotus or was dropped in Azotus. And that's, I think, worthwhile. The one thing I think I would make argument-wise here, just kind of theologically, is that this phrase, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, that is a phrase picked up and used from the Old Testament. In 2 Kings, there's this story in chapter 2 where the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha, Elijah's first, J, it's it's alphabetical order, if you're ever curious, Elijah, Elisha, 
Uh, they're walking together. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, As they were walking alongside another, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up into heaven in a whirlwind. And then it says, And Elisha saw him no more. It seems to imply that there was this snatching away moment. And if you jump down a few verses in chapter 2, verse 16, some people are making some commentary on this, and they say, well, perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. Now, I don't know if I want to, like, use the word teleport. That seems unbiblical in, in some ways. And I don't think anyone in this story will, I don't think if you went to Luke, like, so did Philip teleport? Luke would be like, what's teleport? You know, I don't, the, the vision of this language is that God picks him up and puts him down. It would be like you going up and picking an ant up in your front yard and then dropping that ant off in your backyard. Like to that ant, it's like, dude, something crazy just happened. Like I, you know, like God just has the ability to do that. So this is my, my take on that. And the understanding is that the breath of God that creates and has the ability to interact picks up Philip and drops him off over here. It's just miraculous invasion of the Holy Spirit. And what's this about? Because sometimes we see stuff like this, we're like, is it just a magic show? Like, is it just, and it's never a magic show. It's never a magic show. Why does Philip get moved to Azotus and all these other cities? Well, because he appeared in Azotus, and as he was traveling, he preached the gospel. Never about magic tricks. It's always about the gospel. God did what he wanted with the Ethiopian unit, and he was ready for Philip to do the same thing somewhere else. So right here in the book of Acts, chapter 8, we find the Spirit guides through a loud intrusion, through direct interruption, through provoking invitation, through circumstantial provision, through miraculous invasion. How you doing? Okay? Let me wrap this up and bring it all home. The reason each and every one of these things happen is because Philip is so in step with the Spirit that every time the Holy Spirit moves within Philip, whether it's invasion, intrusion, invitation, whatever it may be, Philip is feeling that and then directly obeys. This movement of the Spirit leads to action. There is no gaps, there is no questions, there is, but God, that doesn't really make sense to me. Philip follows. And what's the re result? The Spirit of God shines through in miraculous ways. See, and I would say just with confidence, that the Spirit of God desires to do the same thing with you and the same thing with our church. He wants us to be witnesses to the gospel, and he empowers us to be witnesses to the gospel. But in order for us to do that, we have to give him control over our lives to step out of the driver's seat and give him full control. And when we do that, our moving, his moving, becomes our doing. And all of a sudden, wonderful, amazing things begin happen but I, I can hear you protest but but how do I know that's the spirit and not like the pork rinds I ate last night like how do I differentiate those two and, and we'll talk about that next week the whole sermon next week is going to be how do we discern this voice of the spirit and angels and all this other stuff we're going to have that conversation but for now can I can I just tell you I fear we fail the spirit far more out of omission than being too trigger happy at First Baptist. That, that we tend to have much bigger gap between the Spirit's moving and our doing than we are just like blasting Holy Spirit all over the place, messing everything up. That there is a deep chasm between when the Spirit moves within us and when we follow in obedience. 
And I'll just stand here as, as your pastor, and I'll say, let me just be very clear. I, I don't have any, like, specified word from God of, like, there's someone in here that they're really struggling with, and you just, I don't know. God didn't tell me that, man. I, I, don't, I don't have that. There's no inkling of mystical magic that I want to use to manipulate you. And having said that, I believe. I sincerely believe that the Holy Spirit is looking to directly interrupt someone's life right here. And maybe he's been trying to do that for a while because you're looking back and you're saying, ah, yeah, he actually tried to do that like 10 years ago and I just didn't listen. And for the last 10 years, you've been on this run with this gap far between the Spirit's moving and you're doing and the Spirit's just coming back in and saying, no, 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 I still want to interrupt your life. And maybe the Holy Spirit's offering some sort of provoking invitation this morning. There's a whole slew of things that could mean. Surrendering to a calling you've had for a long time. Going and talking to a person that God's laid on your heart. And I'm not going to try to tell you what that is. I trust that the Spirit of God within you can do that. I just want to create room for him to move. Let me do this one final thing, and this is where we'll end up, because this is, this is weird, and I get it. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch come to a point that someone, the eunuch, says, I've been saved. There's water. What's preventing me from getting baptized? There's water. Like, we don't have our baptistry filled every single week, but it is filled this week. And I might look a fool up here saying this, and that's fine. And there's a thousand reasons that if that's you right now, and, and you're like, oh, don't say it, Philip. Because you can say, ah, I don't have the clothes. I just say, like, we got, we got clothes up there. We got shirts and gym shorts and wonderful, like, big billy robes, if you want that. Like, we got it. And I would just say, what's preventing you from getting baptized? Maybe you've never followed in that before. Maybe you've never made that step and said, I, I want to declare to the church and, and to my friends that I sincerely believe Jesus has laid me to my sins to death and risen me in new life. And maybe you want to do that this morning. And I would just say, if you want to, if it means I need to get in the baptistry in my church clothes, I will, do, I will cannonball in there if that's the way this works. That's fine. But we're going to have a time of response. And I sincerely believe that the Spirit moves, and He is moving in individuals in here today, and His desire in moving is to have that moving become doing. Maybe that's baptism, and that's so. I'll be up here, talk to me. I, I would love to just walk back there. We'll do it. It'll be awesome, and it'll be super fun. We have towels. We have everything you can need. And maybe that's not it, and that's okay, too. Maybe it's just prayer. Maybe it's surrender. Maybe it's I don't understand. But we're going to ask for the Spirit to move as we follow in obedience. Father God, we're grateful. And although things aren't always easy and always understandable, we know that you are still moving. So God, I sincerely come to you just in confidence that, that you're still here. We don't do this mystically. We don't do this and expect that we have to act a certain way and beg a certain way and then that you'll just fall in this place. We do it knowing that, that at the point of salvation, you have already filled us. You're here. We just want to give ourselves attunement to you. So if there's someone in this church that would say, I, I need that, I, I, I want to get baptized, it sounds crazy, but I want to do it. If there's someone that would say, I, I want to give my life to Christ, if there's someone that would say, I, I need to talk to that person, I need to ask forgiveness, I need, whatever the moving of the Spirit is, God, would you make it so clear? 
And can we take steps to trust you? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.